Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The world of theater consists of four major elements. It starts with the script, that is the basis of the story, the actors, actresses, or the characters, the stage, and then lastly, the audience. The script, the characters, the stage, and the audience. This is true of all forms of theater, whether it be cinema, TV shows, or live stage play. And yes, I consider that all under the category of theater. All forms of theater will contain these four elements. These four elements construct an illusion of reality, where the characters play out their role on stage. And you and I, as the audience, have the privilege of watching the scene through an invisible wall. In the world of theater, this invisible wall is usually called the fourth wall. It is a wall that is supposed to separate us as the audience from the characters and the scenario playing out on stage. This fourth wall is beneficial because it enables the character to be their authentic self. Since the character is unaware of us, they are free of any inhibitions. Their raw character comes out because they don't know that they're being watched. And because they don't know that they're being watched, they don't interact with the audience. And the rule is, the audience doesn't interact with the characters. It also enables us as the audience to maintain an objective outsider's perspective. Yes, we're engaged and invested in the story and the characters, but we don't have necessarily a part in the story. We don't affect what happens in the story or to the characters. Now, though the fourth wall normally prevents interaction between the characters and the audience, for comedic or some other dramatic effect, the characters will at times interact with the audience. They might make a gesture to the audience, a wink, or maybe they address a line of dialogue to us. And when the character does this, this is the act of breaking the fourth wall. You guys following me? Cool. Now, these elements of theater can serve as a great analogy for real life. You see, we are the characters, and we are playing out our role 
on the stage of reality. And God is not only the script writer and the director of reality, but he is also our audience. You see, every act that we're in plays out quorum deo before the face of God. And if we were to continue with this analogy, our prayers can be likened to the act of breaking the fourth wall. We do not see God, and on the face of it, there does seem to be a wall, a clear separation between the physical and the spiritual realm. But in prayer, we break this fourth wall. We look beyond the wall of what is seen and approach the throne of grace in realms that we cannot presently see. And we, as suggested a second ago, do this in the act of prayer. In the act of prayer, we are drawing near to the throne of grace. In the act of prayer, we are expressing need for mercy and grace. And through the act of prayer, we will receive the same. That being said, please join me in a word of prayer as we open up our time. Father, as I asked earlier, um, hopefully this will be beneficial for us as a congregation. Uh, but if it isn't beneficial for anyone else, then I, I simply ask that you would allow my life to conform to it. Um, that being said, may you be glorified. It truly is a privilege to serve you tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the agenda for tonight is fairly simple. Tonight's sermon, as was suggested earlier, is about prayer. We'll start by reviewing what prayer is, just give you a simple definition, and then we'll spend the rest of our time reviewing Jesus' teaching on the subject. The objective tonight is simply to encourage you in your practice, your personal practice of prayer, and then as a congregation in our practice of prayer. And uh, yeah, it's not my intention to impart anything new. Hopefully, that's not a bummer to you. I believe it was Samuel Johnson who said, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. My hope, nevertheless, is that tonight's review will be instructive for you. That being said, let us proceed. Prayer is simply communicating with God. It is the means by which you and I address God. This is how we talk to God. And there are many different reasons why we might choose to communicate with God. Therefore, prayer can take on many different forms. We might pray by way of petition. And this is the usual form that prayer takes in our life, right? This is when we are asking God for something, right? Then there's intercession. This is another common form of prayer. This is when we're asking God for something on behalf of another. It's typically what we do on a Friday night as we're sharing prayer requests or whatnot. Likely, you guys are going to intercede for one another in our small groups later. Then there's worship. 
right? This is acknowledging to God his worth. Hopefully, that's what we all just did a few moments ago. Then there's thanksgiving. This is expressing gratitude to God, obviously. And hopefully this is something that you do at least three times a day before you eat your meal. Yes? No? Then there's meditation, right? This is thinking over a matter with God. Maybe there's some scripture that stands out to you. It's encouraged you or it has comforted you or maybe it's confused you. Right? or convicted you, and so you're talking to God about it. But maybe it's not scripture. Maybe it's something that's happening in your life or a current event, and you're talking to God about that. That's meditation, if you will. Then there's lamentation, and that's not just one book in the Bible. It's when we're expressing sorrow or pain to God in light of some hard circumstance. Hopefully that's not something that we're doing very often. And then the last thing I'll bring out here is confession. This is when we are agreeing with God about our sin and acknowledging that sin. And hopefully this is something that we do as often as we need to. And this isn't exhaustive. These are just a few ways that we can go about praying. Now, if you stop and think about it, prayer is a very unique activity. We don't know of any other terrestrial creatures, any other creatures on the earth that engage in prayer. Right? Prayer is a uniquely human thing. Since the dawn of humanity, God has been communicating with God, or I'm sorry, yeah, Man, God has been communicating with man, and man has been communicating with God. Prayer is part of our human heritage. Scripture suggests that mankind wasn't just made to serve God, but also to know him. And I submit that prayer serves that purpose. It is the means by which we relate to God. It is the means by which we facilitate our relationship with God. Now, we all know that communication is key to any relationship. For those of us who are dating or maybe you just got married, should be fairly familiar to you as hopefully you went through some sort of uh, premarital counseling. That's likely what we hear in those sessions. Communication is key, right? And communication is not only how we get to know someone, but it is also how we stay current with that other person. And this is necessary because people aren't static. We're living and active. We're mutable. We fluctuate. We change over time. And as much as you think you know a person, as much as I think I know my wife, as much as I think I know my mom, as much as I think I know my best friend, there's always something new to learn about them because we're always changing. We're very dynamic creatures. Now, this principle of communicating for the sake of staying current applies to our relationship with God. While God doesn't change in respect to his perfections, 
He is, nevertheless, the living God. And as the living God, he interacts with us. And again, while God doesn't change, we do. And so we need to ensure that we stay current with him through communication, listening to his word and communing with him through prayer. Now, these are just a, some, some general thoughts on prayer. Let's move into Jesus' teaching on the subject. And the place that we'll look for this teaching can be found in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, turn specifically to Matthew 6, verse 5 to 15. Matthew chapter 6 is right in the middle of the famous Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' teaching about prayer is given in the context of his teaching concerning the practice of righteous deeds. In this passage, three righteous deeds are specified or mentioned here. There's giving, there's fasting, and then there's our topic tonight, prayer. In respect to the practice of prayer, Jesus said, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Before Jesus gave positive instructions on prayer, he gave the negatives. Jesus first tells his disciples how prayer should not be done. First and foremost, prayer should not be done hypocritically. See that in verses 5 to 6. Before Jesus gave them a positive example of prayer, he pointed at a negative example and effectively said, don't be like that. Now, there is no such thing as disembodied error. When Jesus said, you must not be like the hypocrites, he was referring to a specific group of people. And while it's true that any religious Jew could have embodied this error, it's likely, very likely, that Jesus was referring to the scribes and the Pharisees. It was this group of people who were most concerned with religious externality. It was this group of people who sought the praise of man. And hypocrite was Jesus' favorite epithet for this same group of people. Hear how Jesus described the scribes and Pharisees later in Matthew chapter 23. He said, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice 
They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Does that sound familiar? How about this? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which are outwardly beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This goes to show that when Jesus mentioned the hypocrites, the disciples knew exactly who he was referring to. The hypocritical behavior that Jesus prohibits was exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were known for. They were known for their pretense, their outward religious performance. So Jesus used the word hypocrites, a Greek word that refers to an actor that performs behind a mask. Every pretense has a motive, by the way. For some, it's self-preservation. For others, it's wealth. But for the scribes and Pharisees, it was their reputation. Jesus tells us that their religious performance was done to be seen by others. Their act of prayer wasn't a means of communication with God. Their act of prayer was simply an act. It was done so that others would see it, and others saw it. And Jesus says, that's all they'll get. In verse 6, Jesus shows them, and us by extension, a more excellent way. He says, but, contrast, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, Pray to your father who is in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. If you're looking with me at the passage, you'll see a contrast between public and private prayer. The hypocrite prays in public. The disciple is instructed to pray in private. But Jesus is not condemning all forms of public prayer. We see Jesus do that in the Gospels. He's commending a right motive for prayer. The way of the scribe Pharisee is not only hypocritical, it's also faithless. A person who prays, a person who gives, a person who fasts, a person who does any righteous deed for the sake of garnering praise or just preserving their reputation is obviously not very conscious of God. They are not aware of his insight. They are not aware and they don't perceive his worth. They're not concerned with the esteem or the praise of God. To put it simply, they don't really care about God when they're doing that. And... 
if I could just put it gently out of love for all of us, because we can all fall into this. If either of us ever finds ourselves in this state of mind, may I encourage you to seek for mercy, to be ashamed of yourself. And then, after the shame has had its effect, turn to God for grace to repent. There's always hope in repentance. The more excellent way is genuinely to approach God, or let me put that better, the, the, the more excellent way is to genuinely approach God. That's how I meant to say it, sorry. And the act of going into a room and shutting the door signifies genuine communication with God. You see, when, when we're alone with God, there's nobody to see it, right? You're not doing it for onlookers, right? You're not doing it for your reputation. You're not trying to sound good in front of church people. You know, you're not speaking in King James, right? You're honestly expressing your heart to God. You're being real with him. But more importantly, private prayer signifies that you and I actually believe that God exists. When we take the moment to pray in private, it is not just formality for you. When we're taking the time and the effort to come to God on our own terms and pray and spend that time in private, it shows that you're convinced that God is present. It shows that you're convinced that he hears you. And Though you and I cannot see him, when we go to him in private, it shows that we're convinced that he sees us. It is an act of faith. The author of Hebrews says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and what? That he rewards those who seek him. Our Lord put it more succinct when he said, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so as we approach God in prayer, it should not be done hypocritically. It should be done in faith. Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that prayer should also not be done ignorantly. That's in verse 7 to 8. Continuing the instructional prayer, Jesus said this. He said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We just saw that Jesus doesn't want his disciples to pray like the scribes and the Pharisees. And again, that pharisaical example is something that they would have been well familiar with. On the flip side, Jesus also doesn't want his disciples to pray like a person who doesn't know God at all. And in his time, the Gentiles generally fell within that category. 
In verse 7, Jesus described their way of praying as heaping up empty phrases with the belief that the more that they spoke, the more that they said their phrases, the more words that they uttered, the more verbose, right, the more that they could be sure that God would hear them, the more that they could have assurance that God would give them what they want. In verse 8, Jesus doesn't just tell the disciples not to pray like that. He also provides a theological rationale or a theological explanation or reason for why they shouldn't pray like that. And the rationale is rather simple. He said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, this pithy theological statement has broad implications. Implications, I would add, that goes far beyond the scope of prayer. But in the interest of time, I'll just draw out three implications from this statement. First, it reminds us that God is father to the disciple of Christ. Right? He says, your father. This is the assumption that Jesus makes throughout the whole Sermon of the Mount. Right? If you are a follower of Jesus, then God is your father. We'll say more about this later. The second implication we can draw from this statement is that it assures us that God is never out of the loop about you. When we pray, we're not informing God about our needs. We're just simply asking him for his provision. In the wisdom of God, he wills for us to acknowledge him for all our needs. And that's one function of prayer to acknowledge our need for God on a regular basis. The third implication we could take from this statement is that it informs us that we never have to clamor for God's attention, right? We don't gain the attention of, of God by means of incantations or formulaic, formulaic rituals. God is not more pleased with your prayer because it was longer or more eloquent. Prayer doesn't have to be hard. Prayer can be rather simple and straightforward. You know, we don't have to say, God, 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 you know, you try to get God's attention like that. He hears you. He knows what you need. Given that God knows what we need before we ask him, it makes long-winded, meaningless prayer not only a sign of ignorance, but totally unnecessary. The Gentiles' manner of prayer is futile. And so Jesus says, don't be like that. In contrast to the wrong way to pray, Jesus provided them with a proper pattern of prayer. And we see that in verse 9 to 15. Jesus said this, Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
The pattern of prayer that Jesus lays out here contains six elements. First, a proper address. Secondly, exaltation. Thirdly, prioritization, supplication, confession, and then lastly, a request for protection. In the remainder of our time, we'll take each of these elements in turn. Again, in the interest of time, I don't intend to spend too much time explaining all of these elements too much. Right? We'll try to walk through these rather quickly. So, number one, a proper address. Whenever we communicate with anyone, it's assumed that we know who we're talking to, right? This is why we use particular designations or titles or names for particular people. Right? I have a particular designation for my wife, and I have a particular designation for my mother, right? When I call their name, I'm directing my attention to who I know them to be. And that kind of leads into the next thing. The way we address a person or the types of designations we give to them, the types of titles or names that we give to them, says a lot about the relationship that we have with that person. Again, the way I address my wife is going to be different than how you address my wife. At least I hope so. And the same could be said for my mother, right? You're not going to call my mom mom, right? You're going to call her by her first name or her maiden name or something like that. This holds true when it comes to prayer. The disciple of Christ is instructed to direct his or her attention to God. And in addition, we are instructed to address God in a particular way. This address will remind us of what kind of relationship that we have with God. And we know how Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer. It starts with our Father in heaven. We already went through this. As we direct our attention to God, we are again reminded of our unique relationship with God. For the disciple of Christ, God is not merely our creator, our king, or our judge. And we are not merely his creatures or his subjects. The relationship that we have with God is a child-parent relationship. And this relationship warrants two assumptions. First, the God whom we address in prayer loves us. Parental love and affection is something that we can rightly expect from God all the time. Therefore, we can assume that when we pray to God, he hears our prayers in love, even if we're asking him for something stupid. Secondly, he's going to respond in love, even if it's a no. The second assumption that we can take away from this relationship is that the God whom we address in prayer has our best interest at heart. Regardless of what our specific relationships are with our parents, it's generally assumed and generally sort of known that parents generally seek the best of their children, right? And this holds true with God. God, when, when Jesus was teaching on this later, he asked the individuals in front of him, he says, hey, if you know how to give good gifts to your kids, like how much more will God know how to give good gifts to his kids? And so we can be assured of that, that whatever God gives us, it is what's best for us. 
But with that, we also need to make sure that we maintain the fact that God is doing what's good for us, even when it hurts. Even when we're going through hardship. Even, that, even when God brings something into our lives that that's the last thing we wanted. The author of Hebrews in uh, chapter 12, verse 5 through 1, talks about how there are times where we experience the discipline of God. Right? We, we know the context in the book of Hebrews is that uh, the Christians were going through lots of hardship and persecution. And the author of Hebrews puts this in the context of God's discipline. And just a small note about discipline, not all discipline is corrective. Not all discipline is for sin. There's some discipline, there's a way of disciplining that is for training you up. And this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. It's that we might share in the righteousness of God. So he puts us through a tougher school at times. That being said, God seeks the best for his children. And when we address God as Father, when we address him properly in prayer, we are reminded of that special relationship that we have with him. Number two, exaltation. I said I would try to get through these quickly, sorry. This gets at the idea of reverence, you know, exaltation. In addressing God as Father, we are instructed to hold God in high esteem. Though he is our Father, we have that relationship. He is nevertheless holy and set apart. And so we receive the instruction to say, hallowed be your name. You may not say this every time you pray. In fact, I don't know if anybody has ever really said that in their prayers, right? But this should reflect your attitude. You see, the name of God closely identifies with his essence. God and his name are virtually synonymous. This is likely why God prohibits anyone from using his name in vain in the Ten Commandments. He is not to be taken lightly. He shouldn't be regarded as some trivial thing. God is weighty in glory. And a special relationship with God does not negate due reverence. And so we are instructed to esteem God this way in prayer. Number three, prioritization. The disciple is instructed to say, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before we express our desires and needs to God, we are instructed to put his preferences over our own. And thus, we are instructed to prioritize. It's important for us to recognize that God's kingdom will be established here on earth. His plans will be accomplished in every domain of existence. In Psalm 46, verse 10, God is emphatic. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. God is set on his glory, and he will not be deterred. And as his children, it is important for us to be in the right mental posture when we come to him in prayer. It is important for us to be ready to subjugate ourselves to whatever his will is. 
And so we're instructed to prioritize. Number four, supplication. After the disciple has addressed God as Father, exalted his name, prioritized the will of God, we'll likely be in the right mindset to make our request. The disciple's request is signified in the words, give us this day our daily bread. The daily bread symbolizes our bare necessities, things like food, clothing, and shelter. But I submit that our supplications need not be limited to our necessities. Jesus tells us to ask, seek, and knock, and we're not told to limit our request to mere needs. Like children, we should make our request known to God. And when we do that, we shouldn't, refer, we shouldn't fear reproach from God. We shouldn't fear that we're annoying God. And also, we shouldn't be afraid that we're going to max God out. Right? There's nothing we can ask God for that's going to exhaust his resources. Right? Last time I checked, this is our father's world. Right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The whole universe belongs to God. Now, as we can all attest, not every request will be granted by God. I asked him for a Ferrari today, and I didn't get it. I'm kidding, I didn't ask him for that. You see, God declined any request that doesn't correspond with his will. But... Just because God doesn't give us what we ask for at times doesn't mean you shouldn't have asked him for it. When he denies our request, God is actually interacting with us. He's not ignoring us, and he's not dismissing us. And I think God would rather have you come and ask him for something that's not in his will than to have you pursue that thing with him outside of the equation. God is honored when we approach him in prayer, even if what we're asking isn't something that he sovereignly ordains to provide. And given that God is our heavenly father, we can be assured, again, of two things in prayer. One, every time we pray, we can be assured that you will receive an answer, whether it be yes or no. And the second thing is that Again, our Father will give us what is best. Number five, confession. This pattern of prayer comes with an assumption. And the assumption is that we have debts that need to be confessed to God and forgiven. And the debt is obviously a reference to sin against God. Throughout our lives, we incur records of wrong, that, cannot, that we cannot put right. These types of debts are debts that we can't pay off. These types of debts are debts that need to be forgiven. And so we're rightly instructed to ask, forgive us our debts. Now, this request also makes the assumption that we have forgiven the debts of others. And not only that, it assumes that we forgive debt in the same way 
that we want our debts to be forgiven. The text continues. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In this, we see that Jesus calls us to a higher standard of prayer. We're not permitted to go about prayer however we want. Now, this is not to say that prayer must always be formal. Our union with Christ grants us many privileges. We can approach God boldly in prayer. We have access to him at all times. And we are free to acknowledge our faults, confess our sins with the full expectation that he will forgive us. Yet, the disciple of Christ must remain a disciple of Christ. And it doesn't change in our prayers. The tacit assumption is that when we confess our sin and ask for pardon, we are not leaving room for the respectable sins of unforgiveness and grudge-bearing. The assumption is that we are first obeying Christ by forgiving others. Lastly, number six, requesting God's protection. We're told to make the request that God would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we ask for God to lead us not into temptation, it's necessary for us to first remember that God does not tempt anyone to sin, right? It is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who expressly said, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Secondly, this request is an acknowledgement of God's providence over the course of our lives. Though he tempts no one, he knows what desires lure and entice us. And being aware of our own personal weaknesses, it behooves us to request for his merciful providence and restraining grace. But for the grace of God, go all of us into the deepest, blackest sin apart from his grace, right? Such a request is not merely an acknowledgement of God's providence, sovereignty over our lives, but it also is a clear expression of humility. The request, deliver us from evil, acknowledges the fact that we live in a world of danger, It acknowledges that our world is filled with things that can harm us. There's persecution, terrorists, natural disaster, and misfortune. Again, there's temptation, worldly influence, falsehood, and heresy. Unless we forget, there's an adversary prowling around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. The world is fraught with both physical and spiritual danger. This is the evil that we're praying that we can avoid. Yet, in this request, we acknowledge that our Heavenly Father has jurisdiction, sovereignty over all things, including the very things that can harm us. If the Lord wills it, he will lead us away from such things. But in the inscrutable judgment of God, there are times when he wills for us to experience evil and by his grace to be delivered from it or through it. 
the story of Job is very instructive for us at this point. In it, we learn that the circumstances of life are outcomes of heavenly deliberations. And this is particularly true when it comes to the darkest situations of life. From the perspective of heaven, there is no such thing as gratuitous evil. God does not waste pain. He does not put us through hard circumstances for nothing. COVID, the lockdowns, the loss of jobs, the loss of loved ones, all of that is part of a grand tapestry. And the faith of a saint equips us with night vision to see in the darkness, to see all the evil, all the hardship, all the pain as a means in the hand of God of working it all for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And the saint who thinks this way will also be delivered from evil. Earlier I said, a disciple of Christ must remain a disciple of Christ. And while this statement may have originated with me, the truth of it doesn't. Jesus bookends this pattern of prayer by reiterating an expectation for his disciples. And that expectation is forgiveness. Jesus said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It was Jesus' expectation that this pattern of prayer would be accompanied by obedience. The disciple of Christ forgives those who sin against them. And Jesus says that such people can be certain that their heavenly Father will forgive them. Why? Because they have forgiven others. At least, that's the condition that Jesus lays out in this passage. Now, this raises a question, right, in light of other scriptures that we've read and we're familiar with. In what sense are we requesting for forgiveness? Aren't all our sins paid for and thus forgiven by the work of Christ? Aren't we justified by the work of Christ? Yeah, we are. The forgiveness mentioned here is in the sense of restoring personal, experiential relationship with God. You see, by the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, yes, we have peace with God. We are justified before God, and there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate us from his love. But in our day-to-day lives, we still sin against God, right? Yeah? You guys still awake? Okay. I'll assume that you guys are following me. Otherwise, you can just look it up later and watch it on YouTube or something like that. We still sin against God. And when we're in sin, we are not fellowshipping with God. We're not sharing in his holiness and righteousness experientially. And when this happens, it creates a relational rift. 
to be sure, this rift is not a loss of salvation, okay? Let's get that out of the way. But it is a breach in one's personal experience with God and God's personal experience with you. But praise be to God, this breach can be patched up. This is why we're instructed here and elsewhere in Scripture to confess our sins to God. But for the person bearing a grudge and withholding forgiveness for whatever reason, we have to ask, for what purpose are you requesting forgiveness from God? You want forgiveness for one trespass while holding on to another. If you want to be restored to fellowship with God, then step into the light. But that's going to require that you forgive the trespass of others, according to Jesus. Now, in closing, it should be noted that this pattern of prayer that Jesus gives is just a template. Jesus doesn't expect all prayer to be formal, like I said earlier. And in light of what he said earlier, he isn't giving this pattern so that we can mindlessly recite it. This pattern provides elements of an ideal prayer, so to speak. Some of the elements should always be present, things like reverence for God and obedience that accompanies the prayer. Some of the elements should be included on an as-needed basis, right? We're not always, we don't always need to confess sin because maybe we haven't sinned recently. Whatever the case, may the Spirit give us discernment on how to apply this pattern. And I end our time by saying, he or she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church through his word. Please pray with me. Thank you for giving us clear instructions. Thank you for preserving your word. In your mercy, please help our lives to conform to you, Lord Jesus. You are worthy. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.